I sort of realized that almost by accident a little bit, but I had been practicing in sort of a typical insurance-based outpatient clinic and I knew that I wasn't that wasn't sustainable and I couldn't last in that. So the big question is, how can physical therapists create a successful career earning six figures or more and give patients the care they need without relying on insurance companies for reimbursement? If you want to learn the answers to those questions and more, then you've come to the right place. My name is Dr. Aaron LeBauer, physical therapist, business coach, serial entrepreneur, and author of the Cash PT Blueprint. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome back to the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast. This is your host, Aaron LeBauer, and today my special guest is Tom Walters from Rehab Science, and I'm excited to have him on the show. Tom is a physical therapist and has a cash-based practice as well as does virtual consultations, and he teaches other therapists. He's a board-certified orthopedic physical therapist and all these great things, so we know he's smart, but he's also helping tons of people out there, and I wanted to have him on the show because Tom's doing some unique things online as well as in person, and it's always fun to get to know new people. And so, Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and sharing your time with us. Totally. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm excited to chat a bit today. Yeah, so it was great. I think I connected with you on Instagram a couple months ago, sent you a message, you sent me a message or something, and and it's, I don't know, the internet's cool. I get to meet new people. Like, I don't think I've run into you before, and but I got to learn a little bit about you on our call a few weeks ago. Can you just, I just want to start off, tell us, like, how'd you get into PT? You know, how'd you, how'd you know you wanted to do that and not you know, banking, finance, or even training, or, you know, doing something else? Yeah, it's a good uh, question. I think for me, it probably, like a lot of people, I, you know, a lot of the students I run into, I think it's a similar story. I was an athlete, you know, from sort of elementary school on up, and had knee surgery in high school, and uh, that was my first experience with PT. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it was a combination of that experience. Uh, both my parents are in my mom's a nurse practitioner, my dad's a social worker. So there was a lot of this kind of discussion about people and healthcare growing up in our, my household. And mm-hmm. I think all, I think those, you know, being a PT, my parents were that influence. And a big part for me too, was that in, I was also really into muscle anatomy and my dad used to make fun of me because I always buy the men's or the, oh, not men's health, but muscle fitness magazine when I was in high school. So I was just intrigued and uh, interested in anatomy and enjoyed that in college too and seemed like a good stable career with good outlook so kind of all those factors sent me in this direction what sport were you playing in high school i actually was a martial artist i started taekwondo and judo in sixth grade and uh, went up to a secondary black belt competed in that and actually taekwondo became an olympic sport the year i graduated from high school so for a period of time i was considering just training mm-hmm postponing school and sort of going that direction. But I was really big in martial arts, did some gymnastics, track and field, different things. So That's awesome. I did Taekwondo in college uh, with yeah. some friends because yeah. within like a semester, you could actually spar with people. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's fun to kick people. Yeah, it's fun to kick people and get hit or get, you know, I had one guy who was a brown belt, like really got me in the nose and, and he wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> So were you doing doing Taekwondo when you were, when you, you know, ruptured your ACL or were you doing something else? I was doing Taekwondo and I actually had a kind of funky condition called a bipartite patella. I was born with it in two pieces in my left knee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a small piece that 
sort of did form it with the rest of the kneecap, but it was lodged sort of in my patellar tendon. And so when I would land, like jumping and things like that were really painful. And so eventually it was interfering with my ability to compete well in Taekwondo. So yeah. I had that taken out. It was pretty minor really, but you know, it was back in the days when they mobilized people for so long. Yeah. 96. And I was immobilized for six weeks. I remember, I mean, my quads were so atrophied. I had, I had a contracture just, it was, um, so anyway, so I had to end up going to PT cause I wasn't following through on exercises like a lot of our patients. So I got and went, went there and saw all the, you know, I mean, I saw things that when you're not in the field, things like electrical stimulation seem really exciting. And, mm-hmm. um, so that kind of sparked my curiosity. Right on. And tell me more, your parents were both social worker and a, and a nurse practitioner, right? Yeah. yeah. Out there. How did they influence you back then? And, and even looking back now, well into the profession like how how are the things you learned from them influencing you today their influence is huge and i didn't realize it at the time i mean a lot of people would know thinking about going to pt school we have all these psychology prerequisites and at the time they seemed sort of annoying to me and i couldn't really understand how important it would be and now with all this research on therapeutic alliance and i mean now i realize that the conversation is probably more important than any of the at, or at least as important as the actual techniques you use on someone, whether it's exercise or manual therapy, whatever you're doing. So I think now when I, I reflect back on how my parents interact with people and their ability to build relationships with uh, patients and just anybody in the community, that has been a huge, I feel grateful to have seen that model, especially my mom's a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Okay. So I think the way she, she's just so good at it, you know, and so I have a lot to learn. I still try to pay attention to how she interacts with people and her ability to listen and build rapport. And so I've seen that now play out in PT and how important that is with, you know, you you know, especially thinking about persistent chronic pain and things like that. So, yeah. What do some of the newer PTs coming out today, like we're just getting in the field, what are they doing differently than, than, than what we might've learned 10 years ago? You know, like, do you feel like that's progressing? Like what they're learning, like in relation to having this conversation with people or is it, is it kind of stagnating? It's interesting. I feel like in the interactions I have with people now, I mainly teach undergraduate students who are kines majors who are looking at going, but I stay in contact with a lot of them as they go through PT school and come out. And I think there are times that I'm pretty excited to see that there's more talk about the relationships with patients and just kind of pain science generally. But then there are a lot of situations where I hear people still being taught very dated sort of concepts um, around pain and, and, and sort of a similar, you know, a similar educational sort of process that I would have had where there wasn't, I didn't really feel like there was a great integration of psychology and emotions and all that into clinical practice. I didn't get much of that. So I think I still see a bunch of students in that boat, but I think I see this slow trend towards a better appreciation of the whole person and um, all the factors that can be associated with pain. Right. Is there like one thing that you, or like one question or one, I don't know, idea or concept that you think that would be something that you've encountered and found success with that you think, you know, other people need to know about, like in this regard, like, yeah, I think just some of the basic, I kind of nerd out on pain science stuff, and I know that's sort of the trend and trying to have a healthy respect for, you know, the psychological, emotional size of pain, but also realize, I think sometimes people hear that to mean that tissues don't matter, that the, that side doesn't matter. You know, I think 
maybe that's a sort of a takeaway for new grads or people thinking about discussing those, those patients that even it for me, even when I try to show that I'm respecting both sides and that tissues can influence pain and these other factors can be a part of it, it's still, there are certain people I meet sometimes that still sort of lead with thinking that I'm telling them the pain is in their head. Mm-hmm. And it's a thing I'm, I'm on the exact opposite, you know, not trying to say that. And it still comes out that way. It's, it's tricky with certain patients to, uh, they just, as soon as, I think as soon as you start to bring up those kind of factors, how you, what you, your thoughts and emotions, they instantly sort of think that translates to this person thinks my pain is in my head. And so, you know, that, I think that could maybe be maybe someone who's newer to the field. Maybe that's something they can learn. And maybe that gives them some insights into just how they communicate that message. There's been a thing going around social media. um, I think it was from Karen O'Sullivan. It's a great, sort of little tip, I think, clinical tip that at the end of your session with a patient and you've sort of taken their history and you've maybe done some, ran through some, you've educated them in, in some way, ask them how they would summarize what, what happened today to a family member. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting, is a neat perspective because I just had this happen the other day where somebody left and I was sort of co-treating with someone else and this athletic trainer that I'm friends with got back to me and told me what this person, sort of what their take home was from my session and the person said well he basically said i'm a weenie and i was like what it's not at all what i was trying to say and so i think that can be a really helpful tip ask them if you were to summarize this our session today with or, you know with a family member what would you yeah. say oh that's important that's a great question you know it's it's interesting because i remember when i started treating patients 20 years ago there was something oh my doctor told me it was all in my head <laughs> right and so there are people out there saying, oh, it's all in your head. And this is before, you know, anyone was talking about, you know, pain science and how, you know, they, they're, they're affecting each other. It's like, you're crazy. Like, we can't find anything wrong with you. Yeah. The opposite. We found this thing and it may not relate to you, but we're going to go, you know, surgerize it anyways. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's interesting to see that kind of old history. I think that's probably some of that. Maybe, maybe that's where some of that stems from you know, a time when maybe people have heard stories. I think we hear that with patients who have had prolonged pain that eventually people say, I can't figure it out. It's just in your head. Yeah, it's just in your head. It's just, yeah. and they dismiss it and patients say, oh, well, it's not in my head because my body hurts. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. your body yeah. does hurt. When I press here, does it hurt? Yes. Okay. Really. You know, it's a tricky like, conversation to navigate for yeah. sure. Yeah. So we talked a little bit and I, I kind of got off topic. My brain just likes to go down the interesting pathways, but you have a cash practice as well as one of the reasons um, I have on, you on here. And I was checking out your website and I noticed that one of the things that you do is offer these great like virtual evaluations and or assessments and et cetera. But I want to ask you about that, but let me step back even and say, did you get into PT knowing you're going to own a, own a clinic? And how did you end up deciding to go into business for yourself? Like, was that like a decision or does that just happen for you? Yeah. I did not think I would own a clinic or be self-employed or anything like that at the time. I, I don't think I, I, th- I think I sort of assumed I would just be like the typical PT kind of model that I had interned under where I'd just work for a hospital or some outpatient clinic and that would be kind of my jam and that's how it would go. It only took me, I actually only worked in a traditional insurance-based clinic for the first three years that I was in practice and this is my 13th year. Mm-hmm. So, I was just sort of, that model burned me out really quickly. I think you hear people sometimes say that if 
a profession, a particular vocation burns you out that you're in the wrong thing. Right. And I just don't think that's always true. I really enjoy the information associated with physical therapy, sort of the academic side of it. But the way that it's often packaged, I just, uh, that's what burned me out. You know, I think I had, I had a sort of a drive for that information and that sort of care, but it just wasn't packaged correctly. And so it took me a while. And I think I sort of realized that almost by accident a little bit, but I had been practicing in sort of a typical insurance-based outpatient clinic. And I knew that I wasn't, that wasn't sustainable and I couldn't last in that. And just slowly, I, I sort of saw other people in my community that had small cash-based practices. And I decided to sort of start taking that on in small amounts and then just realized instantly how much better it was even to just spend, you know, go from spending 30 minutes to an hour with someone made a huge difference. And for me to do everything to do at the time I was doing all the manual therapy, but the exercise was run by AIDS. And so it took to be able to do all of that myself. I think we reached patients got better faster and I was not so burnt out. I just didn't feel so fast. And right. uh, so it kind of slowed things down. And for me, that was better. Uh, I also, I really value freedom and autonomy and those are sort of my top values. And so it's really difficult for me to work for someone else and to be on someone else's schedule. If I'm not just anything in life, I mean, even fun things. When I was in martial arts, I didn't like having to go to class at a certain time because it was someone else's schedule, you know? So maybe that's a personal problem. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> do it so, on my own but, time, you know. But it was definitely, I mean, those factors all kind of came together. I wanted to have control of things, spend more time with people. So it was sort of a combination of how the care was packaged and also having some freedom and yeah. how I set up my schedule. And, was there like a moment in which you were like, all right, that's it. I'm going to go start my own business. Or did it just kind of happen like with a move or slowly or something else? Yeah, I think my realization that that model wasn't going to work was pretty sudden. I remember I had been at this clinic for two years and, you know, they gave a week of vacation or two weeks of vacation. It was very difficult to get time off. And I remember my wife and I, who's also a PT, we're at the same clinic. We went on a trip and uh, like when I came back, when we came back from the trip, we both realized it would be a year before we could do that again. And we quit the next day. So that was pretty sudden. The cash, you know, a different type of model. I wasn't really sure what that kind of transitioning into a cash pay or just even being self-employed, that was a more gradual type of thing. But knowing that that particular model wasn't going to work was pretty sudden. Yeah. Yeah. And like, did you go directly from like quitting that job and starting your own business or did you guys go like travel around, do some other things, get a... Yeah. Yeah. Travel, I'm a, we're really into travel and that was a big motivator. So we actually, after that first two years in the clinic, we went to travel PT. And so we were moving around the U S and doing that. And you know, we were doing those things. We came back to Santa Barbara and then I was trying to figure out where I was going to go from there. And the cash PT thing that the one nice thing about my transition was that I ended up rolling into a teaching job in this kinesiology department here. And so that kind of paid the bills and gave me extra time, you know, a, an academic sort of schedule, at least, at least at this small college, didn't take nearly as much time as a full-time clinical practice. So I was able to teach and build that cash practice sort of slowly. So it wasn't, 
I can see where that would be scary for people to just make the jump from mm -hmm. one into the other. So I had this really nice sort of built-in transition. Yeah, that's awesome. Is your wife working with you or is she doing something else these days? She, uh, we have two girls that are eight and five, so she's mainly doing that, but she is helping me with rehab science, so. Um, awesome. Well, congratulations yeah. on the kids. Yeah, thank you, thank you. You got <laughs> two eight as well, ten, right? So, you know. Yeah. How old are your kids? Eight and ten. Eight and ten. Eight and ten. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, the problems just change. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. So, tell me about, so I loved it, what you call like your virtual evaluation. So, can you tell me a little bit about what that is and how'd you come up with that and what, where'd you find the need to be able to offer this? Sure. Yeah. With rehab science, rehab science kind of started as a, just a fun project. And I, as I would interact with people on there around the world, I just saw that there were people often in situations where they couldn't access care or maybe it was too expensive or, you know, there's other things that prevented them from being, it just, it made it more difficult. And so it just seemed like that would be a sort of natural service to offer to people and um you know i mean obviously i think it's really helpful in situations where people are too far away from care or there's not something in their community or whatever that it's really great for those things obviously the downside is i'm really manual therapy based in mm -hmm. both sort of diagnosis and in treatment and so for me it's always a bummer not to be able to actually touch someone right so you're on video trying to teach someone how to palpate a particular structure to see if that's their familiar symptoms. And so that part's a little tricky, but it has been a cool, um, you know, neat service to have. Yeah. And so you're seeing people locally as well. And, and this is just like a virtual way to get in touch with you for your opinion and some help from like a lot of people that follow you online, et cetera. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I almost think of it as more sort of like a consultation kind of thing. And I usually will build, sort of exercise programs and then try to check in with people after. I mean, it's really similar to in-person care, just without the in-person part. So. Yeah, without the hands, without the being able to touch you through the screen kind of thing. One day that might be, <laughs> that might happen, but these days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So how are you getting the word out? Is there, a, like locally for your patients locally, is there, a, you know, something that works really well or, you know, was there something that you actively tried to do and build that, that worked well for you? Yeah, I think honestly in the community I'm in, which is pretty small and, you know, it's, I mean, it's small size. Well, I mean, it's maybe 300,000 people, but the community of sort of movement practitioners is pretty small. Everyone sort of knows each other. And I've been, I've worked with most of the sort of groups around town. So I think honestly, for me, it was just being connected with people in the community. I don't know. It's not always, uh, that was sort of my main strategy as I was sort of, I transitioned out of teaching this last spring semester. It was my last semester of teaching. And my biggest strategy was just contacting people and letting them know that I was going to be moving back to a more focused sort of clinical role and that I was available if they needed me. And so that instantly just kind of picked things up again. But I think that's been, if I were looking to start a cash practice, I think I would be interested in getting to know other people in the community, trainers, yoga practice teachers, Pilates, other people who are in sort of that cash realm. Yeah. It's really hard to, I have, for me personally, associating with the sort of connecting with other insurance-based PTs obviously hasn't, isn't a, for me, hasn't been a, like they're sending me people. Right. And even doctors are a little tricky because most of their patients are 
planning on using their insurance for PT. So mm-hmm. it usually is sort of connecting with other people. Honestly, mostly a lot of my friends who are trainers and own businesses. Right. Oh, we right. Good relationships. And if they have somebody who's injured, they send them to me. And so mm-hmm. that has worked the best. That's cool. Does your social media, Instagram, does that feed your business? Or is that kind of like a little bit more online education, separate type of thing? Yeah, it actually has been interesting. I didn't think I would get anyone who would actually come for an in-person appointment because people are just all over different places. But I've had quite a few visits, you know, people sign up for in-person appointments who happen to be living locally and have come in for sort of for regular in-person treatment. So that's been pretty cool. I didn't expect that. I just thought it would all, it would be all online. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your online portion. Are they two separate businesses or is this all one kind of like thing? Yeah, they're two separate businesses right now. And I need to kind of look more into that and figure out if I want to kind of pull everything together. Cause I could see where some of the things I have online could maybe be useful to the people that I might meet locally in person and sort of maybe bringing those things together yeah. right now they're separate. So, you know, what was the, sorry. So, I guess, so my question is, is like, well, can you, I want to know a little bit more about the online part and I don't know, you know, I just want to clarify if it was the same business or two separate. So, Online, how did you get started with your Instagram account and helping people online? And what are you doing to, you know, like what kind of programs or, or content, what kind of things are you putting out there you find like that connects with people? Yeah, the Instagram account, I think I might have mentioned to you before. This is actually the third time I've had it. I've deleted it a couple of times in the past, like a dummy. <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to, I'm not planning to do that now. But uh, yeah, I had started it as sort of a fun side project. And it had, I think it, back in the past, I had too much personal stuff on there. And mm-hmm. I was just not really interested in that. So I remember I had deleted it and I had a student come up to me and say, what happened to your account? My mom has a shoulder pain and she was doing some exercises and it was helping. So I left class that day and realized, oh, this could really have a positive impact. So I went out and restarted it and just had the plan of I was going to try and provide something daily that would be helpful to people. Yeah. So that was in December 2016. So it's almost at three years now. And it just slowly, I had no plan of it ever being a business. You know, Mm -hmm. it was just something fun to do and a way to put something positive out there for people. And after a while of it growing, I realized there was obviously a huge need. A lot of people in pain who needed resources. And again, we're often in situations where maybe they couldn't access things, you know? Right. So it, I slowly, so then I started thinking about the virtual evaluation thing kind of came later. Initially, Rehab Science, my whole focus was to target people in pain and to create sort of somewhat inexpensive just programs, exercise programs. So I took, I went and put together the 19 orthopedic conditions that I had seen most often in the clinic and what exercise, you know, eight to 10 exercises would I prescribe for those. And then just created programs like that where people could just come in and buy a program that could watch the videos and look at the instructions on their phone. So that was the whole goal. And that's kind of how it all started. And then I just added some of the other stuff later, but yeah, that's been kind of the focus. That's kind of where it started and how it came to be. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. <laughs> What's the one that most people want? What's the most popular? What, what, what are the like problems that most people are like, Oh yeah. Like, like help me with this. Is it, you know, plantar fasciitis or is it back pain? And, and is there something that resonates more with people? Yeah. 
It's funny. I always thought just because of back pain statistics that that would be the one, but I was just looking at the analytics on the site the other day, patellofemoral pain, which I just call kneecap pain on the site is the most, is the most viewed one. Really? So, I mean, I mean, I just, that to me was a little surprising. I thought some of the spine things would be like, for instance, neck pain, hardly, that one doesn't get as much, uh, you know, as track as much traction, but I think, you know, patellofemoral pain, plantar fasciitis is definitely one low back things like where they have sort of sciatica like symptoms is are popular rotator cuff stuff is really popular. Yeah. So I guess it kind of fits with the trends I had seen clinically with what diagnoses, what regions of the body would come in most, but uh, it is interesting. Because people aren't talking about those and, or is it, or is it something else that makes those more popular? Yeah, I don't know. It's, um, I think about that and it is interesting. I can't quite, yeah, maybe back pain is in conversation so much or maybe it sounds, maybe the name sounds too broad. You know, I think sometimes if you put a sort of biomedical description on it, like sciatica or something or disc bulge Mm -hmm. or something like that, the consumers maybe gravitate towards a little more. So maybe something like patellofemoral pain or kneecap pain, maybe that does seem, maybe it's easier to grasp because it's yeah. more specific. I don't know. Yeah, I like the kneecap pain. I haven't heard anyone use that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I like that because that's very, I know exactly where the pain and problem is, you know. Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting because, you know, I think, you know, when you've been a PT for a while, like we've been, it, uh, you start to, you get so into your world that you forget I think it just becomes so natural to use kinesiological terms and sometimes you can forget what the average person can grasp and understand. And so I've learned that has uh, been a, I've, it's been sort of a learning curve for me on social media to sort of understand more about what type of language people understand better. And social media actually is in that way has helped inform my in-person conversations. Yeah. I just think I, I assumed that someone understood what I had said and it was very different. <laughs> yeah. What was, was there a time where someone like totally got you completely wrong and you're like, Whoa, I didn't say that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely had instances. I, the ones that stick out the most in my mind are these pain kind of ones where people, mm-hmm. those are the, the strongest, those kind of situations stand up to me the most where someone thinks the exact opposite of what I was trying to say, you know, I'm trying to just explain the complexity of pain and their thought is, well, he just said it's all in my head, doesn't believe me. I'm like, what? It's the exact opposite message of what I'm trying to say. So that's, uh, and that stuff still happens now. It's not like it was just in the beginning. So I actually probably, when I first came out of PT school, was very biomechanical in the way I described pain. And actually people probably understood me better you know, so <laughs> now is there's, I'm more uh, aware of the uncertainty and talk about other factors. I think sometimes the danger in that is that people don't really fully grasp what you're talking about. Do you think it's because you're trying not to give them a definitive, like, diagnosis that's like this evil, bad thing? And by doing that, you're not being a definitive decision maker. You're saying, it's probably this, which doesn't sound as bad, but you know, cause if I say, Hey, look, Tom, you've got a, Oh God, what movie was I watching? Oh, Angel has fallen. This new movie that's out. Have yeah. you seen you, you know uh, what I'm talking about? Uh, so it's uh, Gerard Butler and um, 
what's his name? Uh, so, but anyways, he's a, he's a secret service agent and they open it up and he's like, you got your headaches and migraines and the, the physician's like, yeah, and you've got C2, C3 disc bulge and you're going to compress your spinal cord and you need to stop taking the things and doing all this, that, you know, and it's just like, whoa, it's like, what's it called? Like a nocebo effect, right? Exactly. So exactly. I guess my question is, and I'm sitting there going, oh my God, you're just scaring everyone in the audience who has neck pain with your movie. But I guess one of my question is, is do you think as practitioners, we're trying to stay away from scaring our patients by not giving them a biomechanical diagnosis of some sort, like, hey, you've got this patello, you know, patellofemoral syndrome. Do you feel like not being able to do that makes them question whether we know exactly what's wrong with them because we didn't give them a diagnosis, which many of them do want? Does that, does that make sense, what I'm asking? Big time. Yeah, I, this is a conflict in my mind all the time and something I'm trying to kind of work through because I'm that nocebo research is on the forefront of my brain all the time and it wasn't when I was a new grad I don't I didn't even heard of the nocebo effect until probably six years into practice so I think for sure that that sort of explanation I think when you're trying to avoid those kind of nocebos and things and specific diagnoses that to patients can seem like you're less confident and unsure mm -hmm. so it is a tricky, I find that often, I think patients, when you just give them something specific, you risk sort of creating some fear and anxiety, but they feel like, oh, this person's really confident, they know what I have. I mean, orthopedic surgeons function like that all the time. Right. You know, and then it's kind of a funny thing because now you spend more time as a clinician, you learn more about how complex these things, in, uh, these things are, but to your patients, you come off less certain because you're trying to explain all the factors and not, I think, I think it's just good for clinicians to have a healthy dose of humility and all that. And then, you know, when you're talking about cash practice, it makes it even harder because you're in, there's an incentive to sound very like, this is what it is. This is what it is. You need to come see me every week. Cause you're, you have a business, right? About that business and having a person come back and you want to sound very confident. So, but you know, then the sort of ethical PT side of you feels like, well, I don't want to, I know maybe I shouldn't, act and educate them in that way um, just in terms of helping them as a person long term but educating them that way may be detrimental to my business right right so, and I mean I'd be happy running myself out of business but at some point like I have to actually convince patients that I have their solution mm -hmm. and if I can't convey that without scaring them into coming to see me yeah. then I'm not able to actually keep my business alive yeah. and help them that, yep. you know, and that, that's why it's really important. I feel like we have to somehow figure out, okay, how can I give you this very certain, you know, diagnosis of a problem that you have? And here's your, here's our expected outcome without knowing the exact like magical date, they're going to be better and get them to agree to do it. And whether it's a, in a cash practice, I just feel it's more important because patients are, are actually paying more attention and making a decision to do something a little different than just going along with, with the Joneses in going to the network clinic, you know? So like, it's like, how do, and I guess that's my, my question is how do we tease that out so I can give them something definitive to chew on and associate with without unnecessarily treating them or scaring them into needing more treatment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I bet we operate in kind of similar ways with this. I think, 
as I've, I feel like I've slowly started to kind of blend my old self with this new self. And because you, you do feel like you want the person to have something sort of concrete, mm-hmm. so they have something to almost kind of blame their pain on a little bit, you know? So I think I have sort of come to this point where I do a sort of a certain amount of bringing in anatomy and biomechanics and talking about those physical sort of components of the body and how that it could be associated with pain, but then at the same time, try to just plant little seeds of these are other factors too, you know, and maybe start with ones that seem maybe that people can, that don't seem so much like you're saying it's in their head, like sleep. Like, you know, I think sleep and nutrition, I think patients are a little, those things are a little easier for them to wrap their head around versus just jumping right into talking about how stressed they are and right how if they're feeling sad you know just emotions and thinking i i think i kind of leave that i just put smaller seeds and some you know and maybe even it takes a few sessions before i mean i've had people like that in the past where you kind of mention something and then three or four sessions later you know i thought back about that and i just had this thing happen in my life when this started bothering me yeah you know and so and that yeah it's uh so i think that's what i've sort of come to kind of blending those two do you do something similar yeah i do and it's it's been difficult because i'm like well why did this person not you know i'll reflect back and go why did this person not stick with the plan and other people it's like well here's the here's the thing you know i'm trying to give people something concrete but what they really want to hear is that i'm confirming their bulging disc diagnosis by their somebody else their even if it's their friend who said oh you've slipped your back out of place and you need whatever it is, they, it's like, the, so yes, it's, it's very hard. And I'm asking because like, I haven't figured out the easy way to do it because I feel like they want to me to confirm that it's this problem that they think they had or they read on Google. And what I'm really saying is, you know, there's some things in your body that just are a little out of balance and we need to balance the way that you feel, the way that you move, what you do all together. So you feel good and we can control your, your symptoms, whether it makes it a little worse or makes it better. We, if I know we can do that, then we can move forward. And they go, okay, great. That's so subjective, <laughs> but that's not concrete. And it's hard to be concrete and say, this is your problem. Because a lot of times I don't feel like, you know, their problem is that concrete. It's so, it's complex. <laughs> yeah. I think that validation piece for people is so huge. I mean, some of the instances that I think back on, you know, I, where there have been sort of bumps in the road with this whole process i think have been situations where i didn't validate people very well mm-hmm. and you know so maybe i can think of examples where someone had a diagnosis from a medical provider and i didn't spend enough time listening to that and sort of validating that them and that that could be you know yeah you know part of what's going on and started kind of jumping to other things and i think sometimes when i've done that people feel like maybe I don't believe, uh, you know, I don't take any stock in that diagnosis and I'm not. I just think that validation, what you're when you're saying kind of confirm things, we all want to be validated. And I think that that's a huge part, especially that, I mean, it is in an insurance-based clinic, but I think these things, these things become more and more important. The ability to build rapport with people is so important in a cash practice. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're already at least here and, uh, this is a fairly, this town has an affluent population. There's still people are apprehensive about spending cash on PT. Right. You know, this is not their natural go-to. It's, you have to get some buy-in. And 
I find once people get in and they see how things that I think, especially how much more time you're spending with people and that you're focused on them the whole time that then they sort of buy in. But that initial, that first initial conversation is so important. And if you blow it with them not feeling validated and they don't think you're confident, then you can, it can be done right there. One visit. Yeah. And you're in Santa Barbara, right? Yeah. Yeah. A beautiful, beautiful part of the country. I mean, you know, and they've made TV shows about Santa Barbara. Yeah, exactly. That soap opera. I grew up in Montana, you know, I didn't even know about Santa Barbara until my wife grew up here. So, yeah, it's not a, when her parents, uh, they were helping us figure out how to stay here, it didn't take much twist in my arm this day. So. Right, right. I know, I know. I, I lived out on the West Coast for about 10 years and up in San Luis Obispo for a year, which isn't too far. And it was beautiful. When I was there for a year, was when uh, no, San, Santa Barbara County is right below San Luis Obispo County, right? Exactly. Yeah, that was when Michael Jackson's trial in was was taking place in what was it called um, Santa Maria, I think, which is part of San, San, Santa Barbara County, but it was really close to San. San yeah. Santa it's great. It was like a zoo there. I'd go ride my oh. bike through there. It was just a zoo. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a crazy time. All that blah for sure. Yeah. So I want to get back on track here, because you know, uh, I, I, I'm into tangents like you, so. Okay, good. What's the number one thing that you say to people in their one of the first encounters you have with a new patient that really gets buy-in or conveys your confidence that you know what you're doing and you know what's wrong with them? What what are some of the questions you ask or things that you say to people to to get that across? Yeah, I think that's a I don't know if there's something specific that I say every time. I think that it really has been I really enjoy education and the educational process is my favorite part of PT. And I don't know, I think it's sort of a cumulative effect of bringing together sort of research, sort of academic knowledge, and then just the years of practice, you know, and those, I think that sort of, I think that more patients, it's sort of a combo of those things. I think patients sense confidence when you not only have some of this, sort of this detailed sort of academic information that you can communicate obviously in a way that's effective, but then also you can tie that to experience and being able to discuss sort of, you know, a prognosis, maybe how long this might take uh, typically, or, you know, um, you know, in past encounters with this type of diagnosis, what's happened and being able to sort of walk them through a typical sort of trajectory of it. Bringing those two things together, all the while coming off as genuine. Yeah. You know, I think that's huge. I think you can say all those things and have you know know the research and have the experience, but if you don't seem like you actually care, I, that might be that. I think sometimes just being nice is the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just being empathetic and being nice to people, you know, and really caring. Because if you don't care. I mean, I don't, nobody wants to really see that person. Like I just, the idea that bedside manner doesn't, you can't have that while also possessing a good deal of academic and technical knowledge. I I just disagree. I just don't think that's true. Yeah. So I think you can have both those things together and the people, you know, it's sort of like social IQ combined with sort of academic IQ or emotional IQ maybe with academic. I think those are the best practitioners in any healthcare field or, and I can tell it in students, you know, I have undergrad students, lots of them are interested in PT and healthcare and things. And 
you just know which ones have the highest, the ones that possess that high degree of emotional IQ and can combine that with some degree of academic intelligence. Those ones, you just know, you can just pick them out. They just have this energy sort of, you just have this feeling about them that they will do really well in the field. Yeah, 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 that's awesome. Yeah, and, I, and you know, I think the interesting thing is a lot of those students struggle like with the test taking, you know, they're so good at connecting with people that when it comes to test taking, they just like, they, they struggle through it. And I mean, I've seen people, you know, last 20 years, I'm like, well, just get a degree every way you can, because you're gonna be a great therapist, you know, like, test taking strategies don't help you be a better therapist. No, I always scored pretty average, actually, on generalized test scores. It was like the GRE, it wasn't a good predictor of who, uh, how I was going to do in the material that was associated, was associated with PT. Right. And no, not, obviously didn't predict at all my ability to interact with people. I mean, yeah, I think that emotional IQ and your ability to sort of read body language and nonverbal cues, man, those things are so important. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I scored one point over what I needed to get, like lowest score for GRE to get into PT school. <laughs> <laughs> it was about the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, okay. And I almost failed out of uh, neuroanatomy. You know, until my professor was like, start drawing the tracks and everything. I was like, oh, good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah, it's huge. And especially in a cash practice, people really want to feel like you actually care about them. You know, I think, you know, there are physicians here in town that are concierge type physicians and do some of these things. It's the same kind of thing when you're there for someone, you're willing to take that extra step of, you know, you maybe you give them your cell phone number, they can text you and ask questions. That stuff matters to people, just little things. And feel like you're really invested in their care. I mean, if you have all the book knowledge that aren't invested, they don't feel like you're sort of emotionally invested in their care. That just doesn't go as far. People want to be seen and heard, not talked at, you know. Exactly. You know, they want to be like, what's the other thing is they they don't want to, I mean, they do want to be told what to do, but they really want their needs and desires taken into account when we create a plan of care for them. Yeah. Yeah, It's all about that. Totally. I mean, it's really a collaboration and not a, I used to approach it as sort of a lecture, you know, you know, it's just all educational. And I realize it's, it's a collaboration. I think when people feel like they have some autonomy and what happens with their rehab and recovery and their program and setting goals, that's huge. Yeah, that's awesome. Tom, there's, there's one other question I want to make sure we get to before uh, we finish up. On your website, you describe yourself, Tom Walters, rehab scientist. Uh-huh. Tell me, like, what is a rehab scientist and how did you come up with it or decide to use that instead of physical therapist? Yeah. Sometimes I feel a little ridiculous having that still be on there because I'm sort of particular on scientists or people who are actually producing research and things. The funny story behind that is that my previous Instagram accounts were called at rehab scientists. And then when I went to start the new one, it wasn't available anymore. Uh-huh. And rehab scientists just ended up being much better because it's broad and less narcissistic and about the science of it. So it was kind of an accident, but I, I still like it. I think from a branding and a business perspective, I have, it's a tricky thing because I think if I only refer, refer to myself as a physical therapist, that just makes it even more challenging when you think about a cash practice. And so I think rehab science and that rehab science, that's essentially, you know, I was doing a, um, a doctorate of science at Texas Tech in rehabilitation science. And that's really what we do, right? And it's looking at all of the field of rehabilitation science and that informs our practices, PTs. And so that's where it really came from. And I think people see that and they, 
I think it sort of changes how they view your business beyond just, it's just another physical therapy business. Mm -hmm. Even though it's really all the same orthopedic PT stuff, but I think that branding has been helpful in terms of forming a cash practice. I think that's what other PTs see are seeing when they have PT businesses that have a heavy sort of strength and conditioning side. Mm-hmm. And maybe their name and their brand sort of follows that. I think uh, it, it can be useful and can be helpful in terms of building a cash practice. I, I think it's great. I want to give a shout out to Carlos Berrio, who was on one of my early podcasts, but he calls him the movement pain Jedi or sports pain Jedi, totally. you know, rather than a physical therapist. And it's because what, what, what do you think of when someone says physical therapist? To me, it's hot packs, legless, and ultrasound you know, and people get this preconceived notion when it's something a little different, they think about it and they go, huh, oh, he must do something a little different. And maybe I don't know exactly what it is, but I want to know. (laughs) It's almost like that brand, that kind of something that gets people, it sort of brings in their attention is slowly helping people realize that PT is more than what just the ice packs and, and all those passive kind of modalities. I think it's nice because that has been a big kind of mission for me is to help people understand not only pain and musculoskeletal sort of health, understand the complexity, but also understand more of what it means to be a physical therapist and that it's maybe different than what they have thought in the past. But that other name and sort of branding yourself as something different, I think kind of helps get their eyeballs on it and then brings them into understanding PT can be different if you've had bad experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So clearly you lift some weights or do some, move some things in there at least once, you know, what's your, (laughs) (laughs) what are your current, like, what are you currently doing exercise wise to yourself to work on your own body, work on your own movement? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, for quite a few years here recently, I was doing jujitsu. I really like grappling, but grappling does not go super well with needing to use your arms and PT and people trying to arm bar you and hurt you. So I, uh, these days I'm a little more focused at resistance training. I started, I had a great PE teacher in seventh grade and started, t- that's when I learned resistance training. And so I've just always loved it. So my workouts now are, I'm 37 now and things are getting a little more focused on how can I stay healthy and not feel old. Yeah. So less about competitive sort of workouts and things, but I, uh, yeah. So, I mean, generally my workouts are, you know, kind of, you know, three to four days a week of resistance training. I put in some cardio just because I know it's good for me, even though I really, I was a sprinter, so I really can't stand long, (laughs) slow cardio, but uh, I do, it is good and I feel good doing it uh, or not doing it after I feel good about myself. (laughs) Then I like a lot of body weight training because I was in gymnastics. I do a lot of um, just body weight kind of stuff. So yeah, my workouts kind of look like that. I usually kind of lift and run in the mornings and Awesome. Yeah, just general health kind of stuff. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm always like trying some new things every once in a while. This summer, I've been playing with a weighted club and a mace. Yeah. I would open up my shoulders overhead. So that's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Tom, if someone wants to find out more about you online, where can they go to find you? Like website, Instagram, social media? Yeah. In terms of social media, I'm mostly on Instagram. So it's Rehab Science on there. I do have a Facebook, I do share some things over there. So if people like Facebook better, actually over there, it's Rehab Scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, rehab Science is taken there, so I can get that one. But, uh, and then online, it's just Rehab Science, or you know, online, it's RehabScience.com. So those are kind of my main, pretty much the website and Instagram. Cool. Thank you. Is there any question that I didn't ask you that you think would be helpful or beneficial to people listening? 
Yeah, I don't think so. I think this was a good summary, I think, of things, um, kind of my background and maybe some little nuggets here and there if people are thinking about. I think the cash practice, I've run into people over the years who are really interested in it but are scared to take a kind of leap of faith and pull the trigger, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that's something that if people are thinking about it, I think you have to, I mean, there's a certain amount of kind of getting your ducks in a row and kind of making that plan as secure as possible, but you have to be willing to, and at certain person, people have different personalities and be a little more willing to take risks and jump into things. But I think there's a side to it. And, you know, that's something that if some, it's so benefit, it's so, it's been so great for me to transition to this and just be able to have that control and flexibility in my life. And so if people are thinking about it. I would encourage them just, even if it's just uh, stay at your current, place of employment and slowly add cash pay clients and patients after hours or ends mm. or something just kind of slowly build it up because if you put the time and effort and I think into it and uh, just start kind of hustling it'll happen it's just I think taking that leap of faith is I've seen a lot of people struggle with that yeah yeah absolutely me too <laughs> I see it a lot it's just like you got to just jump in yeah. like what's the worst thing that can happen go get exactly. a job at the hospital Exactly. It doesn't work out and you go back to that thing you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're lucky right now. Uh, you know, in 2019, we're lucky. We have like fallback plans as PTs. Totally. It's a great profession. There's so many jobs. I mean, because, because we did traveling PT, I'm in these directories. I get like 10 calls a day for jobs. I mean, it's, it's so, it's such a, I'm so grateful to be in a profession that has such a, has so much need. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a great profession to take a risk in. If it doesn't work out, there's probably 10 other jobs in your town. Right, right, because I can't find anyone to hire when I need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Tom, for being here. I really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and, and nuggets of information with everyone. Totally, man. Thanks, Aaron. It's awesome to be on. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, this is the Cash PT Lunch Hour for Tom Walters and Aaron LeBauer. You know, just go all in. You take a risk because... This is a great profession. And for some reason, you got something really good out of this episode. Take a screenshot, throw it up on Instagram, tag us, and uh, we'll probably reshare it or give you a shout out or something like that. And we'll see you guys on the next show. Thanks so much. Hey, what's up? It's Aaron. Real quick, if you're just starting a cash-based physical therapy practice or you already have one and you want to learn how to grow it and scale it, this is for you. I just released my brand new book, The Cash PT Blueprint, because I want to get this book in the hands of every physical therapist out there. I want to give it away to you for free. All I ask is that you pay a little bit of shipping and handling, and you'll not only get the steps to create your own cash practice, but the tools to grow it and scale it beyond what everyone else thinks is possible. To snag your copy right now, go to cashptblueprintbook.com. That's C-A-S-H-P-T. B-L-U-E-P-R-I-N-T-B-O-O-K.com. And we get your copy. Give me a shout out somewhere on social media. And we'll talk to you soon.